Studios Richard McGurr. Richard McGurr owns an enterprise software development firm based out of Hong Kong, flying back and forth between Belarus and Hong Kong. We believe that Richard today will give us a very interesting and unique perspective on what it is to be an expat between two incredibly different cultures. Thanks for joining us today, Richard. Hey, Zach. It's great to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's go ahead and start off with before we get into the text and the specifics of things that I have absolutely no clue about, but I'm willing to learn a lot about. Let's go ahead and start with the very basic things about who you are as an individual. How's that sound? Yeah, sure. So I am a American millennial from the West Coast, Los Angeles to be exact. And I moved to Hong Kong a little over five years ago. I'm married, which guess is to a woman from Belarus. Um, (laughs) And uh, I have a dog named Bruce Willis. (laughs) I'm I'm glad that you brought up that oh my god i love that you have a dog named bruce willis he's a pomeranian oh my god i love that that's so funny because i would think you know it'd be a, a pit bull or something like that no he needed to be tough and tough you know yeah yeah tough and full of fluff yeah i'm glad that you brought up that your belarus connection because when i was uh reading the a bit of your background i was very confused belarus hong kong mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. i know in belarus well, okay, pierogies are Polish, but I know that Belarus has dumplings of some sort and... They have the potato also. pancakes. That's well, what they're famous for, is the joniki. Ah, okay. But, yes. I mean, other than that, there's really no connection between Belarus and Hong Kong. Correct. Well, Dying. other than a very good arbitrage opportunity, but... Yeah. <laughs> very cool. So, let's go ahead and start out with a little bit of... How did how did you meet your wife? How did you wind up in Belarus? Sure. Was she in California? How did that happen? Yes. Yes, actually, exactly. So she got a congressional scholarship to study in the U.S. for a year. It was global U-grad. But anyway, mm-hmm. so she got placed at my school, uh, which was <laughs> Cal State University at Dominguez Hills. And I saw her in class and that she was from Europe and, of course, very attractive. Mm-hmm. And that I was I had actually studied abroad in Barcelona. And so I was like, oh, we have something in common. And I basically sat down next to her and I was like, you know, I, I lived in Europe for a while. <laughs> and it all, it all started there. So we dated in college for about six months. And then due to the specifics of her visa, that because she got brought over on a government program that's considered foreign aid, mm-hmm. uh, she was actually going to be ineligible for any kind of residence visa. Uh, for two years. She had to spend two years back in Belarus, you know, like applying the lessons that she learned in Mm -hmm. America. And that, you know, two years is a long time, Mm -hmm. especially when you're, you know, in your mid-20s. And that it was also at that time that I I started a marketing firm called McGurr Digital Marketing. It was my first Mm -hmm. company. It didn't get, get very big, but Belarus is the largest exporter of IT and software outsourcing in the former Soviet Union, known as the CIS. Uh, it's like the Russian version of the EU. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a digital marketing firm, so what year would this been? This would have been around like 2012. Yeah. To be a digital marketing firm, you got to be able to make websites. And so, you know, I had my girlfriend who could get, you know, really great developers at a really great price because, I mean, I'm just some, you know, early 20s kid. I'm not getting Fortune 500 clients. I'm selling to small businesses. Mm-hmm. And so they don't really have huge budgets. 
Um, but that because I was doing my design and development in Belarus, you know, I'd be able to sell a, a website for five or six thousand dollars and then, you know, maybe make fifty percent on it. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, when you're when you're in your twenties and living at your parents' house is like a decent amount of money, especially compared to like, you know, some some job. Absolutely. So at, at this time, are you living in Belarus or are you living in California? No, no, I was living in my parents' house, like I said, in LA. Ah, okay, okay. And then your uh, and then your wife now, your partner at the time, she is in Belarus. Belarus, correct. Yeah. And so she's she's in Belarus. And then I kind of got my marketing firm up to like seven or eight part-time staff. And that it was becoming very clear to me that the business was not going to, you know, get where I wanted to be because I mean I didn't really know that much about business. You know, I'd made a lot of mistakes. It was kind of always in a perilous state mm-hmm. in terms of like, oh, if I lose a client or two, it's done. That it wasn't gonna like, you know, become this huge world conquering company. And that that that's kind of was my objective. So I started looking for like, oh, I gotta do something else. And then that was when uh Funny enough, Bitcoin made its first run, uh, or like the first really public run when it went from like three hundred to eight hundred dollars, or a little over a thousand. It ended up, and uh, I started networking into the Bitcoin community in LA. Uh, this is gonna be like a, a long story. It's all good, man. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Yeah. So uh, Brock Pierce, who at this point I think, or at one time, I'm not sure. I'm not into Bitcoin anymore. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I wrote his speech for Bitcoin Miami, mm-hmm. which was like the first big Bitcoin conference. And then he introduced me to this guy. I'm, I'm not going to say his name. But anyways, he introduced me to this guy who's now very famous. Tony Robbins. And no, <laughs> no, someone, someone, someone in the crypto and, and Bitcoin space. Okay. Celine Dion. Celine Dion. Yes, it was Celine Dion. And uh-huh. then I was back in Belarus for a while to like partially meet with some of my developers over there, partially to spend time with my, at the time, girlfriend. Actually, I was proposing to her. I proposed to her that trip. Oh, wow. And then Putin invades Ukraine while I'm there. And okay. because, you know, Euromaidan and everything like that. And Belarus is right next door. It's a few hundred mm-hmm. miles. The capital, Minsk, is just a few hundred miles from Kiev. And then, of course, like my family and my friends, they're like freaking out. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm kind of freaking out too because nobody knows how this is going to go. At the same time, so this guy that I was introduced into LA calls me and he's like, I want to buy your business and I want you to move to Hong Kong. I was really impressed with you when uh, I met you at this event in LA a few weeks ago. I want to hire you and the other guy from your company to move to Hong Kong and we're going to work on crypto. And I was like, okay, but you know, my wife is runs all the operations at my company. Like, this is going to be like a software company slash venture capital firm. It was very hazy kind of business concept, and that should have mm-hmm. been a red flag that the guy's like, "Oh, move over here, and we're going to figure something out." <laughs> yeah, and but nonetheless, he wanted to pay well, you know. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I was looking for an out because one, I mean, you know, Belarus might get invaded. Mm-hmm. Number two, the, just in general, the neighborhood's not very safe, you know, because mm-hmm. that plane had just been shot down over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Also, like I said, my business wasn't really taking me where I wanted it to go. And it was becoming clear that it was like a deeply flawed structurally company. And I was like, okay, you also got to give a, a job to my wife. And we're both moving over there. And he's like, okay, done deal. You're moving in 30 days. And, you know, I was really interested in developing markets because back then there was a lot of talk of the BRICS, you know, the Brazil, Russia, India, China. Yeah, yeah. Right now, Brazil and Russia have fallen off pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And now, like, South Africa has joined. 
randomly. Yes, yes, mm. yes, yes. And so, like, that was always a big... Because I had a business professor in college that showed us the paper. I, I may have the title wrong, but it was like the $3 trillion opportunity is what mm-hmm. it was called. And the, the point it made was that between consumer demand in these giant countries, because they're just so populous, you know, there's just so many people and their, their incomes are rising rapidly between that and outsourcing, whether it's, you know, uh, services outsourcing, which I'm involved in, you know, where like, they're not actually making products, physical products, I mean, manufacturing and manufacturing that, you know, developing markets were going to really massively disrupt the U S economy, which is true. I mean, look at, look at Trump. Um, and so I was like, there's money to be made there and it's going to be an adventure and I'm going to travel all over the world. And that it just really appealed to me. And the thing is that, so I was doing the R I was doing Russia or Eastern Europe, you could say, mm-hmm. and that, Oh, this is getting really hairy. And then I get a job offer in Hong Kong, which is China, you know, and China's the big show remains yeah. the big show where all the actions at. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. So yeah, I was in the warehouse district, like I said, and that's, that's kind of new territories closer to, uh, the border, mm-hmm. the border with the mainland, I should specify. And that is kind of where you'll get the area where if you're not in an office building, like if you go to like the Tan Tan Tang or the Dai Pai Dong, which mm-hmm. is various types of restaurants, that you'll get people that don't speak English. And okay. that at that time, I learned a few words of Chinese, which are all related to ordering food. But the, the story I was going to say about you speaking Mandarin, which is why I was kind of, I said that you could get in trouble, mm-hmm. is that one of my coworkers who used to live in Shenzhen for a few years, Shenzhen and Shanghai, I think, he tried to order water in Mandarin and then ended up getting yelled at. Like, oh, like wow. big time yelled at by two of the waitresses. Wow. Like for like a couple minutes, like straight up yelling at him in Cantonese. Mm-hmm. And I was with a German and my coworker was American. And we didn't know what they were saying, but that he had clearly uh, committed a faux pas by mm-hmm. trying to order hot water. Which now, because of that, we we know it. It's uh, yi soy, it's mm-hmm. hot water. So now I now I know how to say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting that you're like, oh, people are always happy to see me learn Mandarin, speak Mandarin. It's not my experience. Yeah, that's uh, that's so funny because I've I've heard stories like that as well. I don't know what it is. Maybe maybe I just I live in a, a weird little bubble, and then whenever I leave the restaurant, then they start you know talk talking yeah. smack. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But I, I don't speak Mandarin, so I, I don't mm-hmm. have... Well, like I said, thought I was going to learn. Did not learn Mandarin, uh, as you can, uh, mm-hmm. as it has now been revealed. Uh, Hong Kong does because not speak when Mandarin. I, sorry, what? Well, <laughs> there, yeah, it's just... It's correct. I mean, you I, hear... Mm-hmm. I would say these days, even more than when I moved here five years ago, you hear it on the street more often. Mm-hmm. But it's still not, not like commonly. Like, you know, I heard some ladies speaking it on the subway. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, Mandarin." Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like because uh, I, I did have a friend who, uh, you know, from Nebraska, got a study abroad program and went to Hong Kong to learn Mandarin in a Mandarin school, and mm-hmm. it was one of the most confusing things I'd ever heard in my life. It reminded me of um, <laughs> I had a very well well meaning friend who uh, enrolled in a four year program, like a. Four year program. In Hong Kong? No, no, no. This is this is a little bit of a different story. Okay. I had a friend who, without knowing anything about the country, enrolled in a four year program in Brazil. That's brave. To study Spanish. 
Oops. Yeah, I have a very similar story. So when I, 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 I don't know if, oh yeah, yeah, I did mention that I studied in Europe for a while. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I studied in Barcelona in Spain and that I'd already had like quite a lot of Spanish in high school and stuff because, you know, it's Southern California. That some of the kids on the study abroad program like took Spanish. I, I only took business classes while I was there. But that some kids came there to learn Spanish and, you know, they speak Catalan there uh, and they're very proud of it. And you'll get, well, it's not like nobody's going to yell at you for speaking Spanish in, mm-hmm. in Barcelona. I mean, I guess unless it's like at a bar at 1 a.m. and mm-hmm. somebody's feeling feisty, but that on the street, it won't be a problem. But on the other hand, all the signs are in Catalan. You know, the language mm-hmm. that you hear, I would say most of the time is Catalan, though you do, of course, hear like a ton of Spanish. Uh, and that, yeah, it was just that mismatch of like, oh, you thought you were going to learn... Uh, that seems to be a very common uh, occurrence, it seems, given that you have two two stories that I have two stories about thinking you're going to learn some language in a place, and then you don't. And then th- I think that kind of says a lot about how... I'm not going to say, oh, as an American, because an American's so ignorant. I mean, everybody's freaking ignorant. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, but that you can think you you know about a place based on like whatever books you read or TV shows you saw or what you saw on the internet that you can be like so fundamentally wrong. Yeah. I think you know, also, until you actually show up. Oh, absolutely. I think also there is a sense of when, when people are getting ready to travel or they're, especially when we're young and we're getting ready to study abroad, I think a lot of times people in their hearts, they know that they're ready for an adventure and they want to go on an adventure. And so a lot of times they forget to do some very fundamental research or mm-hmm. even at times, like I, I picked up and I lived in Cairo for like four or five months or so. And in my head, I was like, okay, I knew that I wanted something different. I wanted to go on an adventure, even though I wasn't like telling pe- people around me that. Like I was telling them, oh, like I want to go and I want to learn Arabic. And then when I got there, I realized that every country, every region in the world has a different form of Arabic. And there isn't, uh, there is what people say is a standard like a modern standard Arabic, but you would that be what the Quran is written in? Would that be the standard? Well, uh, the Quran is written in what's called Fusha, which is like similar to like, if we're going to make an English comparison, it would be like Shakespearean style English. Like it's very beautiful. It's very classic. It's incredibly poetic. It's constantly referred to as one of the most poetic forms of literature that exists in the entire world. It's very, very beautiful. But people don't speak like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. People don't speak like it's, it's in the Bible. Like, so I beget who? Who beget this guy? Who beget? Absolutely. Yeah, n- nobody. And so when it comes to like Arabic, right? Like there isn't a standard. There is what is created a standard that you see on like um, on news reports and things like so that. Just like broadcast English. Absolutely. Yeah. But then when it comes to like things that are going on the street and like every country, every region, sometimes city to city and in Cairo, it can be like areas of like this city is different than areas of that city of how they speak and their slang and stuff. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I get there and then I'm like, oh, damn. Like I was thinking I'm going to learn a language and I can talk to a massive portion of the world. And it's like, well, kind of. If you learn if you learn Egyptian Arabic, everyone will understand you, but you ain't gonna mm-hmm. know what the hell is going on when they talk back to you. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I have that's 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 interesting. I have a friend who teaches English in Saudi Arabia and he's definitely picked up 
a good bit of Arabic as you would mm-hmm. imagine. But yeah. I, I didn't know. He, I guess he's never discussed to me. How would Saudi Arabian it? Because I know that they're very influential in the region. They so would a, that be one of the more predominant? Well, they got a weird old accent going on there. The only reason that people understand Egyptian Arabic so much is because Egyptian film is incredibly, wow. incredibly popular. Like I it see. was for for the longest time, um, e- Egyptian film was basically like Hollywood. And I mean, to this day, even the the old school things that were filmed in like the 40s, 50s, 60s are still funny. Like they're very, 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 very funny and still watched um, to this day. And, that's interesting because um, that, that's like a parallel with Hong Kong, mm-hmm. you know, oh, because absolutely. Hong Kong was the, the dominant Asian cinema in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean, not nearly to the extent today, but that it's, it's like they were producing films in Mandarin, they were producing films in... Uh, Cantonese, you know, mm. obviously Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, yeah, same, same story. And even The Departed is based on a Hong Kong film. Yeah. Well, no, and no, it, well, it loosely, very, very mm. loosely, I believe. And I mean, it all, it, and it, to this day, it holds up. And so because yeah. of that, like, um, everyone, and also like Egyptian people are just funny. Like they're, they're so funny. It, like there is... There's no way to properly express this until you go there. Like every person on the street is like, everybody's a comedian. They're so funny. <laughs> like, it, and it makes it kind of hard to learn the language because you ask a question and you always get a joke response back. You'll get a riddle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's so, it's, it's very funny. But then like, and, and because of all of this, um, you know, other Arabic speakers, they all understand Egyptian Arabic because they're just entertaining the to be around. Yeah. Yeah, it's the media. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But I would say it's not the case in uh it's not mm-hmm. the case for Cantonese though. Mm-hmm. Because w- what's interesting is when you go to even Shenzhen, you know, which is part of Guangdong province, mm-hmm. the word, you know, Guangdonghua, which is like the proper way to say Cantonese, is that there's just so like for instance in the hotels, there's just so many immigrants because I, I don't know the population, but that it's like there were in the hundreds of, I could be, I'm totally making these numbers up. I'm not a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was like, there were like hundreds of thousands or low millions of people in Shenzhen, you know, 50 years ago. And now there's like, oh man, like north of 50 million, I think, between like, you know, Guangzhou and Shenzhen. And, uh, and that, oh, those are all immigrants, mm-hmm. you know? And so that you actually only hear the Cantonese in the village. Like you have to go deep, deep into like, like Shenzhen is so big, it kind of almost boggles the mind. Uh, I mean, just geographically as well as population, but that you have to get out there in Shenzhen, like way out into the burbs to even hear Cantonese again, mm-hmm. just because, and, and I tried using some Cantonese in, uh, in the hotel. I mean, basic Cantonese. And it was just like, it's clear that they, they did not understand me. Yeah. yeah. I think also um, what you might be running into is because uh, there are a lot of expats in Shenzhen, but none yes. of them are going to speak Cantonese. And so sometimes when you walk, when you rock up with your, you know, white face speaking Cantonese, people are just like, what? They just don't expect <laughs> it whatsoever. Yeah, I do that on airlines, but almost on purpose. Like if, I, <laughs> if I'm flying Air China, I'll be like, I'm going. And then... <laughs> You know, I'll just, I'll, that's just like my, my, my showing off. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. no, I'm Hong Kong. 
<laughs> this series is like weird flex, but okay, bro. Yeah, exactly. No, it's funny because that is kind of like a Hong Kong thing to think to this day. Is that mm-hmm. certainly people in Hong Kong feel that they're on a a different level than the rest of China. So yeah. find out. Yeah. Well, and also there is something very interesting about um, Hong Kong, and I'm going to put it on the same level as like Singapore at the moment, because mm-hmm. these are areas in Asia that truly are more, um, how do we say this? They're more diverse in a lot of uh, very different ways in the sense that there are many people who have Singapore nationality, many people who have Hong Kong nationality who are not what we traditionally think as being from Singapore or from Hong Kong. They're much more oh, yeah. mixed. And so... Yeah, you hear... Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, you're absolutely fine. Um, you... Like, for example, I have a friend from Hong Kong who his parents are from Massachusetts, and this guy has flaming red hair, he has a beard, and he speaks Cantonese better than many people I know who are ethnically Hong Kong Chinese. And mm. there, and so what happens sometimes is like, for example, when I've, when I've been to Singapore, and if you have the gravitas, if you have the confidence of like, yeah, man, like I'm, I'm th- I'm standing on this land and like, I am from here. You can, you can sort of like have that moment where like I was in, I was in Singapore. And when I spoke uh, Mandarin, people immediately assumed that I was from Singapore immediately. They're like, Oh yeah, yeah. No wow. question about it. He oh yeah. Yeah. Cause it's just so divorce, diverse. Diverse. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you could easily be like the son of a British person. Absolutely. Do you, you know, have, they're just like, Oh yeah. You grew up here. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you experience that at all in Hong Kong? Uh, have there been moments where people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Richard, Richard McGurr, traditional I would say Hong Kong. No name. way. Mm-hmm. No way. Because there's just so many expats here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's such a, a transient population uh, for the expat community that mm-hmm. I'm at the point now where, like, other than the old crusty British dudes, where when I tell people I've been here for five years, they go, whoa, that's a long time. And really five, five years is the long time mark it seems to be it's not to me personally because mm-hmm. you know i know a whole other set of people that have been here 20 or 30 mm-hmm. you know but that it seems that that like you know the difference between averages and medians uh it would seem that the median is lower than five years especially given my age you okay. know because I, i'm like 31 mm-hmm. so uh, most people did not show up here when they were you know 26 Mm-hmm. So they'd be like, oh, you're here on some corporate stint for a year or two, and then you go home. That Yeah, I would say for my age is probably why I get the, the oh, you've been here a long time. Mm-hmm. But I, also- it's generally true. I mean, if I meet most people, like, I mean, I don't go to Central. I mean, I'm married, so I, mm-hmm. I don't go party and drinking in Central that often. <laughs> um, you know, you meet most people who are in my age group, and they'll be like, yeah, I got here like six months ago, 18 months ago. You know, that's that's a lot more of the standard. I mean, then mm-hmm. when you talk to people in their 40s, then you'll get, you know, yeah, I've been here 10, 20, 30 years. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, like, I noticed uh, in my trips to Hong Kong, I do notice that uh, when you go out to Central... Because when I go, I'm usually on a visa run or I'm there promoting some some, like, show that I'm working on or whatever. And so when I go out, I'm usually in, like t-shirts and blue jeans but then you can always spot the expats of hong kong because they're out there oh, i would never what... go out in t-shirts and a blue jean well I... never and like and, and it didn't used to be that way i'm from la you know mm-hmm. like the capital of casual but 
I just got here and it was funny. I, I worked, I worked, I was in a very nice office building when I first moved here in Citibank Tower, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the same. It's, it's across from where Goldman has their office. I think BlackRock and Citibank are in that tower. Uh, you know, all like like the heights of international finance, and that I'm wearing my my California business casual, which you know I was just wearing whatever my dad used to wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like, oh, I got some decent shoes, some khakis, and a polo shirt. Yeah, and <laughs> like my boss after three days, because he let me settle in, and then he's like, one day at lunch, he's like, here's four hundred dollars. Uh, we are going to Marks and Spencer's, and we are buying you a suit. And do not wear your polo shirt again, except on a Friday. And oh. then, like, you know, that was really hard to, to get in my head for the first year. Mm-hmm. But then they kind of explained it more, and I just saw it. And it's like, no, if you're a professional... And I actually have internalized it fully, mm-hmm. uh, where I think if you're a professional, you should dress like one. Because it's respect for yourself, it's respect for your trade, and it's respect for your your clients because mm-hmm. it's like I take this very seriously and I'm good at my job and so I'm here to conduct business mm-hmm. and that now it's it's even where like yeah if I'm going out to dinner uh, unless it's like I live in a suburb called Discovery Bay on a different island and yeah I wouldn't go out to the dinner places out here wearing my button up you know because mm-hmm. it's I mean I'm not in Central but if I'm going to Central or even if I'm just going to the bank like just because I do a lot of working from home because it's my own company, mm-hmm. um, is that it's like, yeah, I put on the button up. You know, I don't wear a suit so much anymore because, I mean, I work in IT, not finance. Um, but, you know, IT guys in the US do not wear button, button ups. They just don't do it. Yeah. Um, it's like, yeah, I, I put on my button up. I put on my, my leather shoes, my belt, and my slacks. And that I just got very comfortable in it. And that's the way you do business. And yeah, it's just... It's just what you do. And I feel like it's, I'm at the point where like, I can't even, well, it's not like I'm actively thinking like, oh, I take this job seriously. And that's why mm-hmm. I dress up like this. Now it's just like, no, if I'm going to go conduct business outside with other people, I'm going to wear my attire. Well, and, that's, that's so interesting yeah. because like uh, in Asia, in a lot of ways, is very different from the West. I mean, very, duh, very obvious like thing to point yes. out. But <clears throat> when it comes to, when it comes to work culture, there is an idea that you are never really off the job. You are always at work. And well, also because it's like a, a 60 hour work week is normal. Well, actually, absolutely. I think legally it's a 50 hour work week mm-hmm. in Hong Kong. And it wasn't you know, whereas until, in the US, yeah. it's legally 40. Yeah. And so. uh, in, uh, in mainland China, I. I don't know if there is an actual like legal standard, but I do know when they were trying to enter the WTO, the only reason, because they only used to have one day off a week in mainland mm-hmm. China. And then when they were mm-hmm. trying to enter uh, the WTO, they said, okay, it's legally required by human rights standards that you have to have two days off a week. And then it mm-hmm. wasn't until like the late 90s, early 2000s that they actually got two days off a week. Which well, and that's only like legally. You look at nine nine six, you know nine nine six culture in the mm-hmm. tech industry. That means nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week. Yeah, and that so you know you could say yeah, legally they have two days a week off, but in reality, you know that's a legal fiction. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting to see how that bleeds into how people live their daily life. Like you, for example, who you would never go out to Central, which for our listeners at home is uh, a massive like bar culture. You know, it's 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 this yeah, it's the city. Well, it's center. the CBD too. Yeah, 
yeah, it's the central business district. So it's like the sky, glass mm-hmm. and steel skyscrapers, banks, finance, mm-hmm. lawyers, blah, blah. But, and yes, a huge entertainment center as well. Yeah. In terms of and I mean, I think Hong Kong has, bars. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And, and I think Hong Kong has the highest uh, per capita saturation of restaurants, mm-hmm. I believe. Really? I, I believe, I believe. I mean, I've I been told I, that on multiple occasions. I wouldn't doubt that whatsoever. Um, oh man, I'm craving right now Ebenezer. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, Ebenezer's. Ebenezer's. Ebenezer. Yes, oh, but there it's we very go. Good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have one that delivers in my oh. neighborhood. Love oh it. man, I hate you. Um, but um, it is it is so interesting because you go out there and like for me because I'm whenever I go to Hong Kong I'm visiting or I'm there for some sort of like work trip. But because I work in entertainment, my sort of uh, my bubble, my world is very different than yours. But whenever I see people out there on the streets, and I, maybe it's because I'm out in jeans and a t-shirt, and so the locals are they behave with me a lot more no, you look differently. Like a tourist. If yeah, I yeah. see someone in <clears throat> jeans and a t-shirt, I'm like tourist oh absolutely but then when i see like people out in uh you know button-ups or, or business slacks i'm like in my head i'm like wow that guy is so stuffy he like you're clearly off work like why don't why don't you go out and party more i was about to say you go party with that guy and he will put you in the ground <laughs> that, that, <laughs> guy will, that, that guy will party out party you any day of the week and that i only actually recently started working in central again oh speaking of recently i moved in t- to my unit on Wednesday because we got big enough where we decided we need an office uh, because we, we need some staff in Hong Kong besides my wife and I. So we have two staff in Hong Kong. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we have two staff in Hong Kong, my wife and I, plus a consultant. Uh, and then in Belarus, we have 55 staff. And that is that means that all of the communication bandwidth runs through my wife and I. And it's getting to the point where there's too much bandwidth for my wife and I to run mm-hmm. the projects as well as run the company, especially because we'd like to keep growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that means we have to bring some people from Belarus or hire some local staff, which means I'm not going to have them work out of my house, obviously. Uh, yeah. Also, I don't think that's legal in Hong Kong. Um, so we finally got an office in Central. So now, and this is after how many years? Because only my first job, which lasted like 10 months... Because another reason I own my own business is that I'm I'm like unemployable, you know. Like, why are, uh, why are you unemployable? Uh, I just say attitude, <laughs> uh, and it's not like I would say that I'm like a, a rebel or anything. Well, I am a rebel, but it's not like I'm like you know shaking my fist at the man. Hmm. I would just say it's very hard for me to get motivated to make someone else money. It's you uh, know what we are cut from the same cloth on that uh, because I I have a hard time. With authority, when the authority figure is dumber than I. Oh, that's exactly what I, I was going to get into that. And the thing yeah. is that in both companies I worked in, I think it's because I started my first serious job. Okay, so I worked at Jamba Juice for two years. <laughs> and then I started my marketing firm. Uh, it's because I wrote for like a, a blog mm-hmm. uh, back in like 2010 and 11. And then blogging got very big around that time in terms of like commercial blogging where companies were producing content content marketing and i was like oh i know how to do that at scale mm-hmm. you know like how, how to run because i had been a writer i hadn't been like an editor but that i'd seen from the inside the operations that it takes to produce the large volume of quality content and that that became like a skill that paid and it paid a heck of a lot more than like 750 an hour or whatever minimum wage in California was at the time. And then I was like, oh, in two hours a week, I can make double what I was making at Jamba Juice working 30 hours a week. Mm -hmm. Because 
you know, some business guy is like, yeah, I'll pay you, you know, because to, to even to a small business saying, I'll pay you 1500 bucks a month to do my blog, that's not a big expense, even to a small business, except to someone who is making smoothies. You know, I'm like, that's a yeah. huge jump, especially in terms of hours, you know, because mm-hmm. I was like, like I said, I can work two hours a week. And then, uh, you know, do whatever kids do in California when they're in their early 20s the mm-hmm. rest of my time. <laughs> and uh, also, I mean, yeah, you're not, you're so not that, like on your feet the whole day either because like, I mean, you're working well, I was chilling, I'll be honest. Set, man, uh-huh. I, I was playing video games and hanging out with my friends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then I was like, oh, I'll get some more clients. And then I realized I was making about as much as you could reasonably expect someone in their 20s to make in California. Mm-hmm. You know, I was making 50, 60 grand a year, four or five grand a month. I mean, that's good money mm-hmm. uh, for someone in their 20s. And I was like, this is easy. Not easy, but I would say it's very doable, you know, because I, I, I believe that all you got to do is get out there and sell. Like have yeah. a skill, meet people who want to purchase said skill or solve their problem, you know, if you want to get get into it. Uh and then people will pay you for that mm-hmm. and that you'll get to keep all of the uh, margin, you know, uh, you'll get to make your own schedule. You'll get to do the job the way you want to do it. And that if you see a problem, you can fix it. This is getting related to why you're like, like uh, I feel that other people are stupid. Mm-hmm. So then I got into, you know, my first real job. And, you know, as I mentioned before, there were a lot of red flags in that business and that being an employee, even though I was paid well, uh, I was like, this business is going nowhere. There's nothing I can do about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, there's literally nothing I can do. My, my, uh, I can give advice and it can be ignored most of the time, you know, for right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't like a business genius at the time, by, by <laughs> nor am I a business genius now. Um, but, but then it was just like this is nonsense. I, I, I just need to go back to doing my own thing yeah. and, you know, being my own boss. But it's not just because it's not. It's not just because I'm like, oh, I hate being told what to do. It was like, I hate the fact that it was clear that I was being exploited. Or at least, Mm -hmm. well, no, you're literally being exploited. Somebody's making more money off you than, you know, they're charging more for the value of what you're producing than you're getting. And they're taking the surplus. Mm -hmm. And second of all, they're doing a lot wrong and you can't do anything about it. It's it's time to abandon ship. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. And so what happened? Yeah. Well, I was just going crazy. I just, I just knew it wasn't sustainable and I was miserable. Mm-hmm. Like I was absolutely miserable. Yeah. Um, especially because I, I, I like staying up late. Uh, and I was just... All the office jobs I've ever had, I've been more or less constantly sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. And I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Like I need eight to nine hours of sleep a night. And, the, mm-hmm. and I like staying up until 2 a.m. Yeah. And so the only way to make that possible is to work starting at 11. And frankly, there's not a lot of professional jobs where you're allowed to start at 11. Yeah. Uh, and so that's like, okay, there's another thing where I kind of have to be self-employed in order to pull this off. Mm-hmm. So when I left the company I was working at, it was a venture capital firm. Uh, my wife started this company, uh, Visitate, or it used to be known by a different name, uh, Gray Lab. We just changed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she started that, and then I got another job basically to support her. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, to support the business, I should say, to keep paying the rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for, like I said, about a year. And it was the same situation. I, I started initially very psyched about that job. 
because it was like that. Well, one thing I didn't like from working in venture capital was that uh, I much preferred, well, what in venture capital is referred to as the execution side, which means like actually building the business, not just, you know, evaluating businesses and investing in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I much preferred actually building the business and being involved in it and growing it. Um, so then I got a job back in execution. Uh, I was running marketing and, you know, we were good at it. Well, the marketing firm was, the marketing department was good at it. Most of the other departments were not. Uh, and it was the same situation where I kind of realized the business was doomed very quickly because the business had one job. Uh, you know, if you're a logistics company shipping packages, this company better be able to ship packages and get them to their customers on time and, you know, to the right address. And oh, if no. you can't do that, then there is no amount of marketing that's going to fix this company. Oh, like, no. it's, it's, like when yeah. you, it's like when you show up to... I, this is a very dumb comparison. But I used to work at Buffalo Wild Wings for like six years when I was in college. and uh-huh. uh, Or no, like four. And there were several days where we just didn't have wings. <laughs> yeah. And I had to look people, people show up. Can I get some wings? No. Nope. Sorry. So so what do you got? You got buffalo and you got wild. Nothing else, man. And you had to look people stone cold in the face and be like, hey man, we ain't got wings. Sorry. And then yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm do sure you still you, want a table. Do you want a table? Like I can give you a whole lot of wild. Yeah. Oh man. No, exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> Yeah, but imagine like if that restaurant was out of wings uh, all the time, four days a week. Cheesy, crazy. You know, because eventually you get a bad reputation because people are like, "Don't go to Buffalo Wild Wings; it's a waste of time." You're going to yeah. show up and and they're going to not have wings, so better not show up at all. Yeah, exactly. Dead. Yeah, it's reputation. And and it, and it also it goes back to what you were saying because like at, at the time, like because I would I would tell my I would tell the boss I would tell the manager I'd be like, dude, we're out of wings, like. People are going to show up here. Okay, we have. You need like, to fix the wings. Like our supply chain has problems. We, we there are issues. We are known for our wings. Like yeah, okay. We also have burger because he would tell me, oh, we have burgers. We have like flatbreads. We have beer. We have like whatever. I was like, yeah, but yeah. dude, like I didn't when know that until to, I worked here. Up, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have expectations management, and dude, bruh. We have 19 flavors of sauces to go on our wings. People aren't showing up because we have delicious flatbreads and like, you know, 20 whatever beers on tap. Yeah. And then he'd be like, no, we're still, we still got to be open because blah, 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 blah. Well, they have to be open. It's corporate. They can't close the store. But in my head that I'm like, wow, this is really dumb. And then you have that moment that you realize, wow, I am so much smarter than the person who has authority here. And whoever's in charge of ordering wings. Yeah, can't forecast demand or the supply chain uh, can't get you enough wings. One of the two. There's like a serious problem in the business and you can't fix it. Something happened. And, and I also realized that whoever is in charge of ordering the wings or supplying the wings or whatever, I am making significantly less money than that person. And I have a higher yeah. business acumen. I mean, at the end of the day, the chicken should be making the most money. But yeah. That's when I, I realized, oh, I should strike out on my own. And it sounds like you had a uh, a similar sort of experience. You realize like, oh, well, I just shit. had several experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where it was just like, man, this is dumb. <laughs> you know, and there's 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 a serious problem in this business. Uh, it's frustrating. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to work in a failing, mediocre company. Yeah. You know, I want to 
go accomplish something. Uh, I actually really like creating value for customers. Like mm. I, I, I very much romanticize capitalism in that regard. Uh, that. You know, which is well. Uh, I think that value is created. You know, and and what do I mean by that? I mean that when you when someone becomes rich, it's not because they took that money from like the less fortunate. It's mm-hmm. because they created a surplus of value between what that person was willing to pay for something versus what they received. You know, they're like, I got eight. You're not going to buy a comb for, oh, this is a weird example. Um, What's really weird is like, I'm I'm actually playing with a comb right now because it like folds in on it. We can cut this out of the interview, but I'm actually holding a comb right now. No, no, this is actually good. Let's go with that. Yeah, go go with it. You love that comb because it's cool and it folds on itself and that it's like a conversation piece when you pull Mm -hmm. it out. You know, Mm -hmm. if that comb costs $500, you probably wouldn't have bought it. But that if you bought it for six bucks, then you're like, I got so many conversations out of this thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and I got to play with it and it was worth more than the six bucks and that you're happy about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the other hand, the guy who sold that comb, let's say he produced it for $2 and then shipped it to the store for another $1.50, and then he made $1.50. That $1.50 was value creation. Mm-hmm. And, and so was the value creation for you, where you got $40 worth of, you know, uh, emotional satisfaction out of it. Mm-hmm. Or, and combed your hair so that you could do your job of being an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to look good, right? Absolutely. That worked for everybody. Yeah, every, everyone was happy there. Um, let's, yeah, because this is, you know, capitalism is a very hot SEO word. And I'm sure Cody is like salivating right now, just saying, yes, well, talk more about capitalism. Hong Kong, man. This is yeah. like a, uh, Hong Kong is like a monument to capitalism. Because, and like, that I, is one of the things I love it. Because I too, I, I love capitalism. I benefit from capitalism because, I mean, literally, I'm a white guy working in China who learned Mandarin and I'm on TV shows and I work as an actor. I work constantly because there is so much demand, but there is very little supply for people who look like me and can do what I do in that market. But Ditto for me. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. But let's talk a little bit about when capitalism goes wrong because capitalism isn't, it isn't a perfect medium. Right. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, Definitely no. not. Yeah, especially. I mean, Hong Kong, you could say, that's why Hong Kong is fascinating to me because mm. there are parts of the Hong Kong economy that work very well. Uh, for example, you know, the public transport here is is more or less privately owned. But is at the really? same time, we're... Yeah. Wow. Other than the MTR, which is a... Uh, well, the MTR is a publicly traded company. You can buy stock in the MTR. MTR Get Corporation. Out, really? Yes. Uh, and the way and that they the MTR and all the bus companies. Sorry, hold on one second. The MTR for people at home who may not know is the uh, the metro system. Yeah, and that we are like you can ask anybody, look at any source. No one will tell you that any other fact. Oh, God, that's just such a complicated way to say that. Hong Kong is uncontroversially the owner of the best public transport in the world. I have not, and I come from LA, which means, you know, I've taken multiple cars to hundreds of thousands of miles Mm -hmm. up until when I was 25. You know, I've probably done 200,000 plus miles on my car Mm -hmm. uh, before I moved here. I have not owned a car since I moved to Hong Kong, nor do I need a car. I want a car, but, you know, it is absolutely not required. Mm -hmm. 
it is so hard for me to explain to people in the U.S. that public transit in the U.S. is garbage. It is oh, absolute it's terrible. trash. It is absolute trash. Even like you go to Chicago, you go to New York, like and people are like, oh, we have the subway. We have the metro. It's garbage. It doesn't run on time. Go to, man. Well, and it doesn't make you happy. You don't appreciate it. Versus yeah. being in Hong Kong, you can, you can literally get all the way across town quickly mm. and for uh, under a dollar. Yeah. And then, and then be so satisfied with the experience. Absolutely. And say like, I just got such a great deal and it was a clean bus and it got me there on time and it was a clean subway and it was just great. And I'm so happy that we have the MTR. You're never going to say that about public transport. You know, mm-hmm. in, at least never. in LA, you're not going to be like, oh God, the MTA is so amazing. I mean, and, and the, uh, the public transport in Taipei is like insanely amazing. It's so incredibly clean. Like I know, cause you know, it's, it's a walking city. You have to like walk a lot of places or you can, you know, hop on, you know, Taiwanese people, uh, people in Taipei really complain. They're like, Oh my God, it's such a far walk. It's going to be like 10 minutes because public transport is so close and it's, it's a small city, but it's, big. You know what I mean? There's a lot of... It's all stacked on top of each other, similar to Hong Kong. But yeah. I do know when you're out and about, you know, like sometimes you you have to go to the bathroom and eat. Mm-hmm. There has been several times... I had trouble that, finding a bathroom in time. What happened to me? Well, and there are, there are several times that I've been like, man, I need to go to the bathroom and I know that I want a clean bathroom. So I go... I've literally swiped my card and gone into the metro, used the bathroom and not gone anywhere and then just gone right out. <laughs> because it yeah. is it's so clean there's toilet paper there's going to be soap like it is it's a very very clean wonderful experience yeah yeah, yeah. i mean but so in, so to get back to what you were saying yeah, there's like enough about, and minus, enough about bathrooms <laughs> well and 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 things being private or not mm-hmm. you know is like uh, let's say another good thing about hong kong capitalism is that there's there's very little paperwork which means you can do business without basically having to worry about the opposite of Belarus, for example, where there's like, you are just drowning in paperwork all the time. And that it for sure hurts. uh, It makes it so that a lot of people or a lot of business activity just doesn't get done because Mm -hmm. you're like, I just have a huge overhead in terms of managing all this paperwork all the time. Mm -hmm. But let's say something that is fundamentally broken in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, with, with the lack of paperwork in Hong Kong, does that lead to a lot of corruption? Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that's <clears throat> not, like the thing is that the the Hong Kong corruption, oh, this is really interesting. It facilitates corruption in other countries. Oh, you know. Okay. That's Tell that's about that. what I mean. Well, it's just because where are you going to wash your dollars? You know, where um, where are you going to dollarize the Chinese economy because mm-hmm. you know you can't convert RMB. Yeah. Uh so what do these companies do? They go and uh IPO in Hong Kong mm-hmm. uh, on, let's say, like a completely fabricated business, you know, or mostly. In fact, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange trades at, at like one of the lowest earnings multipliers. So that's like the amount, the, the value of the stock versus the amount of money it makes. Okay. Uh, trades at one of the lowest in the world because there's an implied discount based on the fact that so many of these businesses are just fraud. Mm-hmm. Like they don't actually exist. They only, or let's say the reality versus, versus what's on their financial statements are two mm-hmm. completely different things. <laughs> like you, there's like companies, there's what's the movie, uh, some Netflix movie about the China hustle. 
and that they talk about mm-hmm. like Hong Kong short sellers, and it'll be like some factory in China with two buildings and a hundred staff, yeah, uh, IPOing in Hong Kong, saying that they have twenty thousand staff and you know billions in revenue, and then basically mm-hmm. they IPO, they sell a bunch of share for dollars, like U.S. dollars, and yeah. then they disappear. And that it's not like the Hong Kong people who got fleeced there because it's mm-hmm. not like Hong Kongers are buying these stocks. They're yeah. selling... Well, I guess they could be. But it's more that they just sold it to Americans or they sold it to some other country or mm-hmm. that they have a shell company in Hong Kong because, well, it used to be that you could you could basically open a bank account here with a company almost without showing ID. That's how it used to be 30 oh, years wow. ago. It's, it's okay. completely changed now. It's, it's um, sort of like an inflated version of the Nigerian prince scam in a lot of ways. It's where the Nigerian prince scam puts all their money after they've stolen it. (laughs) That's what it is. That's what I was going to say. It was like, you go, you either buy a company off the shelf Mm -hmm. that already has a bank account and go look up shelf company, Hong Kong. And then you take possession of the bank, the bank account, you take possession of the company. And then you just start creating like these invoices, you know, you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, invoice to buy whatever. And you issue it to this, this company issues it to some other company somewhere else. And then you send it a few hundred thousand dollars, a few million dollars. And then it sits there in Hong Kong and it's safe. It's in dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be sent anywhere in the world from there. And now you have an invoice saying that you bought whatever, proving, oh, it's clean money. You know, so I would say, yeah, wow. there's an incredible amount of corruption, but that it's, it's not like at the local level. It's not mm-hmm. like I'm going and paying. I have to pay bribes to do things. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's just money laundering. It's a it's more term. It's it's more okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, <laughs> that is that is the word for it. Yeah. So I was gonna yes. say it's a very like it's a very stable form of corruption, as silly as that sounds. And for a lot of it's institutionalized. This, yeah, yeah, I think is the word the word that you're looking for. Okay. Th- thank you. Thank you. Um, I think also that this is very appealing to a lot of this is very appealing for a lot of people because like, I think the the more it works for Hong Kong. Yeah. We're making money on it. And the more innocent way to say it is like, you know, when it business and art, a lot of people say that there, there is not a sort of, um, there's not really common ground for artists and business people to sort of exist on. But I would disagree, especially with hearing this because, you know, there is no one, um, guaranteed road to success when it comes to business and comes to making money. Definitely and so not. a lot of times people have to get very, very creative with it. They, and, and so I think the innocent way to say this is like, Oh, like in order for me to make my money, like I have to be more creative and then get creative with the laws. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, like in order to like, for example, when it, when we were talking about like Enron, Right. Enron, Oof. they did something. I, I know, I know. Like everyone in the room shudders, but they did something yeah. that was it was it was very smart. It was smart what they did until it didn't work. When they created all of these raptor companies, when they said, "Okay, like I can invest back in my own company, but I have to have like I have to have a fake company or a shell company to sort of like do this," and then they created a raptor company to feed into their own company. And then from there, they had to create another Raptor company to feed into their that Raptor company, and then another and another and another. And it's it's well, and they start doing control. things like shutting down plants and cutting off electricity to spike the price. Like, yeah. Oh man, I remember rolling blackouts. I'm in California. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was, you know, that's when capitalism spirals out of control. And like, I mean, my... But that's my breaking uncle, the law. See, that's where I'll oh, pick a bone with you. Yeah. I'll say that that's, that's not capitalism, that's theft. Okay. You know, like, I, you could say it's a behavior that occurs within capitalism, but you can't be like, this is like... This is capitalism. Uh, how it's supposed to function. Yeah. Because it's not. You know, capitalism relies on uh, the rule of law and the enforcement of laws to prevent theft and fraud mm-hmm. and violence and coercion. Yeah. You know, which is one thing that Hong Kong is good at. You know, that's why all the China businesses run through here is because we have an independent court system. <laughs> uh, reference to something, current events. Um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's why people do business here. And that's why it's a good place to launder money is that everybody assumes it's clean. Mm-hmm. You know, is that they're piggybacking off the fact that we have a functional capitalist economy here. Yeah. To an extent. And I was going to say, there's also areas here where it is extremely corrupt. Like, such as, there's a reason why there's no Walmart and Costco here. It's because of the monopoly between Li Kaohsiung and uh, Hutchinson Wampoa, where they own the two supermarket chains, which, you know, have sub-brands, so it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like there's only two supermarket chains. Yeah. But in reality, you can only buy your groceries from two places. Uh, and that I think Costco tried it. You can go across the border to Shenzhen, and they mm-hmm. got Costco and Walmart. Yeah. Not here. Because those those two companies are so dominant in the Hong Kong economy and because of the way we structure our government here, we have the functional constituency in the legislature, which to explain what that means is they give legislate, they give seats and thus votes to industries directly. So imagine like if, yeah, imagine if uh, Boeing had a certain number of senators because you know, aerospace is a very important... I mean, you can kind of see the logic behind it. Yeah. Like, oh, our aerospace industry is a, a, a key pillar of the American <laughs> economy, which it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only to the economy, but to the defense sector. It's very important. So we're going to give them a direct say in politics. <coughs> Whereas, like, in America, they do it through lobbying. Well, I mean, honestly, and in, in, to be honest, like, me personally, I kind of... I like that a bit better because it's a bit more... It's a bit more upfront. Oh, I would say that it's gone horribly wrong here. Oh, okay. All right. Because that idea in practice... So so go explain. Yeah, so I'll let you explain and then I'll pick that apart. Because in, in my mind... Please do. Pick, pick me like a hyena. Um, because right. in, my, in my mind, like I hear this and I say, okay, like this does make sense because if you're in an incredibly capitalist society like Hong Kong so much of your economy and thus your livelihood and society depends on the businesses that are there. And so yes. if you have a person, like, for example, if the CEO of, I don't know, Jollibee, for example, is uh, has a seat at the table and then they say, okay, like, I believe that we need to vote on this bill that says, okay, the roads need to be cleaned up or the roads need to be fixed in a good way because that is good for my personal interests and then my constituents' interests and my employees' interests because that guarantees that these burgers make their way to my restaurants and then to my customers. And well, so they- and that it's like, if there's some policy that's hurting them that makes no mm-hmm. sense, they're able to like directly say, oh, I need this policy fixed. Absolutely. And ha- a- have a say. Absolutely. As opposed to the senators in the United States, for example, who they are constantly being lobbied and you don't know where they stand, for example. like Yeah, it's like you say, I wish that they wore a jacket like a NASCAR driver. Absolutely. Because yeah. you know, you look at this person and you say like, okay, they're 
they are clearly like on the side of big oil or they're on the side of, you know, um, the NRA or they're on the side of, uh, like four, just you know, give your special interest group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you you know exactly like where they stand. Um, so that's where I would say the benefit would be. See, so then you reverse that. Well, mm. maybe maybe that's interesting because you're talking about a system that's actually like a functional democracy, mm-hmm. whereas, and we're getting to a territory that is uh, marginal, where okay. I would say that Hong Kong is not a fun a functioning democracy, nor is it intended to be. Mm-hmm. It's intended to give ba- basically mainland China has absolute check on whatever Mm. happens here. Yeah. And that the functional constituency is designed to make it to be fundamentally Mm anti-democratic by design. And that means that it's almost their payoff that they have this institutionalized corruption because they're like, yeah, you back Beijing, you know, and whatever policies we want pushed here. Uh, and in return, you can kind of like have your way with the Chinese, with the Hong Kong economy, okay. where you can like make incredibly anti-competitive laws, mm-hmm. such as the fact that we have like our taxi industry is the famous one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're big blow up with Uber. So, you know, Uber had their Asia HQ in mm-hmm. Hong Kong and that uh, I can't remember what the government organization is called. Oh, Invest Hong Kong, which is like the, the foreign investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, promoter of Hong Kong made a huge deal about Uber's choice. They're like, "Look, we're a, we're an innovation hub in Asia because everybody's trying to get on the startup thing." You know, mm-hmm. uh, they're like, "It's so great! It says so much good stuff about the Hong Kong economy, about why they were chosen to be here." And then, literally within a matter of days, there were like mass arrests of Uber drivers, and it was declared illegal because the taxi lobby, which is part of the transportation mm-hmm. functional constituency, was like, uh-uh, these guys aren't getting on our turf and yeah. we're protected. And we're going to go ally with our other buddies in the functional constituency and then shut this mm-hmm. down. And so this was like massively embarrassing <clears throat> to the I mean, Hong Kong government. Yeah, which I mean, honestly, like... And uh, it's totally unpopular. Like, that's yeah. what I mean. Like, no one on the street was like, oh, we can't have Uber here. Like, you go survey, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Hong Kong people and they're not like, oh, we got to protect the taxis and, and we got to get rid of uber no people people are down with uber it's yeah. just that you've got this special interest group who's like shut it down mm-hmm. but i mean honestly like uh if i was if i was standing as a hong kong local or specifically as a taxi driver i would understand like i mean if i was a taxi driver i would absolutely yeah, but they don't own their cab uber yeah yeah the they company don't own their cab. cab yeah the company owns the cab yeah. right but yeah. i mean like but because they also don't own a car is the thing, right? So they, they rent the cab from the company. Um, and the license. And the license and, and everything involved, right? If I yep. was a taxi driver, because all of a sudden... because Okay, speaking frankly, right? Many taxi drivers in Hong Kong and, and Beijing, all around the world, are they tend to be in their 60s, 70s, right? Yes. And they don't really have skills outside of being able to drive a car, which is a very yep. valuable skill. And honestly, I can't I can't drive a car in Hong Kong. Traffic's insane. I can't do it. Yep. I remember so, I saw my first crash Lamborghini week one. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's, I would there is no way that I could drive a car in Asia, in Cairo. Like there is absolutely no way. I am unskilled in that regard. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you if you open the market too much, all of a sudden there's Uber, which gives you incredibly, incredibly cheap rates. As 
a, uh, as you say in Chinese, a law by Well, they weren't just cheaper. I would say that they were the same price, but that a Hong Kong cab is not a fun experience. Oh, you know, okay. the cabs here don't have a good reputation. They drive kind of crazy. The cars are very mm. old. You know, oh, they okay. can be pretty surly. Versus mm-hmm. the reason people like Uber is that you summon it on your phone, you get your bottle of water, it's a nice car, gets you, and you can actually summon it on an app versus having to stand there like waving your arm oh, in the okay. rain yeah. in the summer. It was just like a superior experience, mm. even though it was slightly more expensive. Mm. See, I assumed that it was it was cheaper. Like that's the reason why people would choose Uber over a in taxi. the U.S. It is okay, or at least that's that's what I I, I think. But mm. no, in in Hong Kong, <laughs> the taxis are super cheap. Uber oh, okay. was slightly more expensive. It was just a nicer experience and more convenient. Oh, oh, that's so interesting. Because I, I yeah. like I assumed it was completely a price thing. But I mean, if the service that they're giving, because I mean, I've taken a cab like, I don't know, a handful of times in Hong Kong and I've had Mm. okay experiences, but also my standard is pretty low because I just don't really care. Um, Yeah, me neither. I'm not one of mm. these people who, yeah, but continue. But okay, wow, wow, wow. Okay, then that completely like shuts down my argument entirely. So I was thinking like, okay, you know, we should get rid of Uber because it's taking away too many jobs from the local people who otherwise wouldn't have jobs and they wouldn't have like a livelihood but i mean if they're providing shitty service then you know maybe well, they shouldn't have those jobs. i would say there's good value at their service there's just mm-hmm. certain groups of consumers that are willing to pay a little more mm-hmm. for a fundamentally like completely different experience you know but nonetheless mm-hmm. it was a threat to the taxi lobby and this and that and so they mm-hmm. shut it down they i mean you can down. still order an uber here here's a very hong kong thing though it's not like uber's actually shut down you can mm-hmm. order an uber here to this day you know, so what, what they that, just. But what does that mean? Is well, just, just because like in Hong Kong, people less... don't really respect the law. Okay. To be blunt, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's not like they're disorderly. They don't mm-hmm. respect the law. I mean, their disregard for the law is more in terms of like nonsense laws, because um, Hong Kong people are very conscientious, very clean, very mm-hmm. orderly. But at the same time, the government is just not invasive here at all. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of how it's designed is, you know, like an experiment in lazy affair. Mm-hmm. But the, the, that kind of continues to this day. It's like you look at the housing shortage, even in central. And so, you know how you'll have like restaurants and shops for multiple stories, like mm-hmm. four or five stories of shops and restaurants. In reality, most of those place, most of those places are only what's it called zoned for commercial on the ground floor. Mm-hmm. So technically, putting a shop in the second and third and fourth, et cetera, floor is illegal. But nobody's doing anything about it. It's a nonsense law that's not hurting anybody, and thus it's not enforced. What's funny is it depends on the constituency that you're, you're going against, mm-hmm. versus the government is very tough on commercial space or industrial space being used for residential. Because, you know, Hong Kong property is, you know, expensive way too hell. expensive. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, like, that's like the dominant lever of the economy. Yeah. Well, not the economy of of the elite class all made their money in real estate. Richard, would you now, say that some of these laws exist to how do I want to phrase this? It's it sounds to me, right? Like uh sometimes they put a lot of these like laws in place so that as long as you play ball, totally good. I don't give a flying for what you do. But the moment yes. that you sort of step out of line, then I have a thousand ways that I get to trap you. If you're stepping out of line and it's not even necessarily against the government, it's mm-hmm. when you go against the large businesses here. Mm-hmm. 
and which there are three or four. And I said wrong. I earlier when I said it's Lee Kaching and Hutchinson Wampoa, that's the same company. Because you get you literally <laughs> lose track of how many companies Lee Kaching has. You I know, mean, like if you look at your receipt from uh, IKEA, it says dairy farm. You're like, this isn't a dairy farm, what's going on? Oh no, mm-hmm. that's just the retail arm of Lee Kaching. You know, and then yeah. I had a friend who looked at his monthly expenses and he had a, he had a business, so he had an apartment, he had his like telecom utilities, he had his office rent, and then he calculated that something like 60 to 70 cents of every dollar that he spent in Hong Kong went to Lee Cushing. Whoa. One man. I mean, to One be man. fair, to be fair, right? To be fair. In the US, we have the same issue. I mean, like... Well, Not nearly to this extent. I, 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 uh, I was, I was going to say that, um, but I was thinking like, I mean, the Koch brothers own like almost everything. But it sounds yeah, like but in Hong Kong, like, it's like more intense, right? But then you could say like the Koch brothers own almost everything. And then you're talking about like one or two cents of, of a dollar. Oh, okay. You're, you're not talking about 50, 60, 70%. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, of, I, just, of, I just processed that. I just processed what you said about how your friend realize that 60 to 70 percent of everything that he is spending is going to one man yes that's, that's what insane. i meant yeah it's incredibly insane i mean like, it, it's it's absolutely mind-blowingly insane and that 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 is the part where i was like there is corruption here mm-hmm. you know because he through his control of functional constituencies through his control of other things <laughs> it's just certain industries that are untouchable mm-hmm. the rest is not the rest is fair game and it's like, don't mess with the supermarkets. Don't mess with property. Don't mess yeah. with transport. What are everything else is fine? So the the, part. you would say that there there are three markets to not mess with. That would be like supermarkets. It's not only three. Those are the uh-huh. three off the top of my head. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's just like no go. There was one store called like the Seven Five Nine store. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a chain. They're a new convenience store because Lee Cushing also owns Seven Eleven. You no. know, which is everywhere. Yeah. Not really? like 7-Eleven globally, but, but all oh, the 7-Elevens okay. in Hong Kong are okay. this guy. Um, he has the franchise. Mm-hmm. And so 759 opened, and the only way that they were able to get it through is that they had only products that were not sold in any other store. Because basically, Lee Kaching would use his bargaining power and say, if you sell to any other supermarket besides our little cartel... You're dead to uh, me. Yeah, you're dead, and we're going to drop your product. Which means wow. like you're done, you're done in Hong Kong. So you go to like so seven, the only way, you go to seven nine five nine and you can buy like what like well it's just they're a Korean store so it's like mm-hmm. random brands from different companies in a, different companies in Asia so yeah. you're like oh here's like some Japanese sports drink well there's a lot of Japanese sports yeah. drinks but like here's like this Japanese type of potato chip and here's yeah. this like Indonesian type of noodles and I got, I got beetle nut. like all these like random products you know they're good and they've yeah. actually been successful mm-hmm. you know but it's because they were just so determined to say like we're gonna it's like the the green shoot through the concrete. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, fine. We'll play by your rules. Because it's not like legally he can say, oh, you can't have a supermarket. But mm-hmm. that he can use all his like shady connections and other influence. But yeah. yeah. So, not, so they're, they're, like, they're, we're definitely delivering on your, your topic of saying there are some serious downsides to yeah. capitalism. I mean, it's, Hong Kong is just such an extreme city in that regard. That's what I tell every... Like, like whenever it's like, do you like living in Hong Kong? I I just inevitably sigh, and I yeah. go, oh. and I go. There are, are a lot of pluses that are really extreme, and there are a lot of negatives that are really extreme. 
Mm-hmm. And if that particular, because that what that forms is like a bargain or a compromise, right? Mm-hmm. And if that compromise works for you, which it does work for me, because I'm still here, mm-hmm. you know, for the time being, and and I have no plans to go anywhere anytime soon. If mm-hmm. that works for me, it works for me. On the other hand, a lot of people wash out of here real fast. Yeah. It's like, man, you know. I, I love dim sum, but God, I hate corruption. <laughs> yeah. No, you're like, oh, I love the economic opportunity. What I don't love is paying, you know, uh, what your average American makes a year just for like a 300 square foot flat. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't love that. You know, I don't love yeah. the weather because the weather is really harsh. I don't really love the pollution. Uh, which, you know, we're not as bad as the mainland, but, you know, yeah. in the winter, our air comes from the mainland. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't love that. Uh, I don't love the work hours, you could say. Because, like, mm-hmm. I wasn't kidding when I said, like, if you have a, a, an office job, if you're not doing 60 hours a week, you have a problem. And, I mean, your boss is going to be like, why aren't you staying until 8? Yeah. You know, and that used to drive my wife crazy when, uh, for the period of time where I had another job while well, she was starting this company mm-hmm. it was like you know she's like how come you're always home at nine and i was like just because if i leave before then i look like a slacker yeah. you know and i'm running the marketing department i gotta do it even if i'm there doing almost nothing you know it's like the japanese thing where you're like oh i'm just here to show face yeah and like show that i'm here doing whatever in my pm tool or something like that can't go home early like if you leave and then i got to the point well once i kind of mentally decided i was quitting yeah, it would roll around to 6 p.m. And mm-hmm. that's another thing that's funny is I hear from the U.S. that people work 9 to 5 in an 8-hour day. And I'm like, wait, you count your lunch hour as a work hour? Like, <laughs> like <Yeah>. what? <laughs> you actually mm-hmm. leave at 5 and not 6? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's like the minimum. That's like your legal minimum is working from 9 to 6. Yeah. And it's like I would leave at 6 and then even the guys under me on my team were like, I can't believe you leave at 6 every day. And I was like, deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, our that- department makes our too bad that is something that like drove me up a wall like the years and years and years and years ago when i actually had a um uh god i sound so privileged when i actually had a quote-unquote boss um mm-hmm. that, that i had to answer to because there were days where like i would get my work done and i would be done at like noon and i'd mm-hmm. be like okay like i'm gonna go home now and then they'd be like no no, no you have to stay here i'm like but all of my work is done what mm-hmm. what what do i do now and they're like, oh, but you have to be here because we're here. And in mm-hmm. my in my very American brain of like, well, I have literally nothing to do. All I am doing right now is wasting time. I have to sit here in this chair and like, I guess I'll go online and play games or whatever. But literally yeah, all Twitter. of my work is done. There's nothing to do. And they'd be like, well, yeah. yeah, but you still have to be here. Why? Oh, and in Asia, that's just to the extreme. It's like, don't even think about it. If you leave at noon, that would be like the biggest... And I, even at, I'm at the point where I would think of it as like a massive insult to the company. Yeah. To leave but, at noon, I'd be like, what are you thinking? You know, the, and then in my head, I know how irrational that is. Mm-hmm. But, and okay, so you're the perfect person to ask because you are American and you, you know, you grew up there until you were like in your 20s, right? Um, mm-hmm. Why? Why? If I have nothing to do, then why do I have to be here? It's respect for right. the job, which mm-hmm. is the same reason I wear my nice clothes. And it's respect for the company and it's respect for the customers. Okay. Because there's this thing, for instance, to go back to the clothes issue of like wearing your slacks and your button up, mm-hmm. is that it's called enclosed personality. It's a real thing. 
Mm-hmm. Your productivity increases, your focus increases, everything increases when you put on a suit. Like this is scientific mm-hmm. because you know that you're like, I'm here to work and I wear these clothes and I work. And then as soon as I get home, they're off and I switch to my t-shirt, you know, okay. and my like uh, trainer pants. Mm-hmm. Um, but that when I'm at work and I'm wearing my nice clothes, I carry myself differently. You know, uh, I speak to people differently. If I'm sitting at a computer, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't screw around. I need to work. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is that, you know, it's like the Chinese value work. Like they have a different view on... Oh, here's the way I've had it explained to me. And I've never lived in the mainland, nor do I speak Chinese. So I would say that though I have lived in the People's Republic of China for five years, I have like far less than average understanding of Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's been explained to me is that it's your time, your free time is not worth very much. Mm-hmm. You should be working. You know, you should be trying to go collect more possessions or uh, trying to advance your career or trying to advance your social status. Like, like what are you doing with your free time? It's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Like you should be working and you should be trying to achieve. And that is one of the things that I do really respect about Chinese culture is that they're like single-mindedly focused on achievement. You know, and or at least that—that's how I perceive it. Is that you're like you—you need to go be all the best you can be in the army. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, and I really like that about this place here. Is that I I feel so motivated in Hong Kong because I'm surrounded by people that are like extraordinarily wealthy Mm -hmm. and that have even in the expat community where they're like a president at a multinational company or a bank. Like you meet people here, like your average friend, because you know, they say that like, oh, you're the average of your three friends. Mm -hmm. In Hong Kong, your three friends are like a president at JP Morgan, uh, your buddy from Goldman, and then this guy who owns a big company. And those Mm -hmm. are your friends. And that you're like, I can do it. It's a normal thing. Like they have normalized the highest level of achievement. And that once you, I believe that once you believe that, you will go and do it Mm -hmm. because you will just see the path. You know, it's like here in Hong Kong, one of the reasons I love it is that because the business culture is so strong is that I can go sell to like enormous companies. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, how you were talking about how you're like, oh, I'm a white guy. And so that allows me to, uh, you know, I'm a hot commodity in the entertainment market. Mm-hmm. That's how it is here for IT because uh, IT is considered a low status career mm-hmm. uh, in Chinese families because it's like a technician job. You know, oh, the okay. high status career is being uh, a banker in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. And that it's kind of the reverse of in the US because in the US, usually the business school guys are like the BNC student party kids. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the engineering departments are like the the nerds, you know, that mm-hmm. are straight A's. So I've heard it's the opposite here where the kids, in the, the kids in the engineering school were not able to get into the business school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, and I think that's wrong because I personally think there's much more career opportunity in technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I work in technology. I've done very well in it. Uh, but it means that there's a huge shortage of tech people. On the other hand, in Belarus, you know, I have a connection to a country with excellent engineers that are at a very competitive price. And that uh, I think that if my company, with the credentials we had before we got into enterprise, were to go... Uh, Enterprise meaning selling to extremely large companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I were to go try and sell to these companies in California, there would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other service providers that were better than me. Okay. That they would never choose me. But here, because there's such a shortage of IT people, and I've got this arbitrage from from Belarus lined up, you know, that I can go like knock on doors, and that the community is just so small here. Like this, 
say Hong Kong is a small place in the expat community. It's a tiny place. Like I got a reference from more or less like a drinking buddy of mine who like the CIO of uh, an enormous company was like, I need programmers. I'm desperate. He's Mm -hmm. like, hey, go talk to Richard. And then I basically got a meeting with the CIO of a huge company. I told him a bit about my firm. He's like, okay, here's a trial project. Uh, I, we delivered on it. He's like, okay, can you handle more developers? I mean, as in, can, can you staff more people in my account? Cause we get paid per seat, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, can I buy five developers off you? Can I buy, all right, you, you managed to pull that off. Cause they're just desperate, you know, mm-hmm. here in Hong Kong, they're like, absolutely. Well, all, all businesses are desperate for technology in Hong Kong. You have the outsized opportunity versus like the extremely small supply. So it's like, yeah, I, I show up, I'm here. Uh, I'm also like passionate about customer service. Like, here's why I'd say we succeeded. We got a shot, which I wouldn't have had a shot in the US, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, because we were passionate about customer service, because we were passionate about constantly improving, and because it was like, it was obviously the shot with this customer. You know, I'm going to go from like tiny little mobile apps for startups to like, here's a company that has a seven year roadmap where they could use literally like a hundred developers, you know, that they're like, yeah, we need it. We need it. We need it. Like, like, can, can you add, how soon can you add 10 developers to the team? And I'm like, uh, I got to go tell my recruiting agency. Maybe I can like, that's what I, I love about Hong Kong is that there is, if you can hack it here, both in terms of like the work culture and the hours mm-hmm. and the cost, frankly, you know, like it's very heavy pay to play. What I mean by the cost is, you know, your rent, your food and everything. Cause yeah. like all the food comes on a plane because mm-hmm. no one eats the food from mainland China because the food safety issues mm-hmm. uh, that are well known. I don't have to get into. Um, another supply chain issue is. <laughs> you know, so you sit here and, and you wild you're, wings. Why are they wild yeah. wings? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's because you don't exactly. Uh, you know, so you go and have dinner and like mm-hmm. you, you know, that's the funny thing about the difference between here and Belarus is that when I when especially for my wife, it's very funny. Mm-hmm. When she's back in Belarus, she's like immediately back in like the save money mode. In okay. terms of like any expense north of five dollars needs to mm-hmm. be like absolutely, you know, you need to think about it really hard and make sure you're Mm. getting absolutely the best deal. And do you really need to spend this money? And then you get to Hong Kong and you're like, you can't even leave the house without spending like $70. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just the money just goes here. You're just like, Oh, I'm going to go have sushi. And it's like $80 a person. And that's not even a big deal. You know, that's not an expensive sushi place. That's just sushi. Yeah, but then you hit you hit Belarus, and all of a sudden you're talking with your wife, and you're like, "Man, I really want to go to McDonald's. Do you got McDonald's money?" (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, like, don't you realize? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we have food at home. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's exactly Mm -hmm. it. It's like we got food in the fridge, you know. (laughs) All right, Richard, man, I could, I tell you, I could talk to you until I am blue in the face. Thank you so, so much for coming on this episode. I can guarantee that we will definitely have you back. Um, but I do know that we do have a time limit and uh, I can hear our producers gnashing their teeth telling me, get off the air right now. So thank you so much for coming on this episode, Richard. Oh, I loved it. And like you said, we still have more to talk about. I mean, we didn't even talk about Belarus at all. We didn't so. even talk about Belarus. And we, yeah, we definitely need to. And I... I'm very curious about that part of the world. And Richard, 
something I do love about this conversation that we had is when we get into fields that I personally know nothing about as like business economics and things like that, I can feel incredibly intimidated. Like I, because people love to throw buzzwords at you and all of a sudden you get very self-conscious and that's something I worry about. But in talking with you, you explain things that I thought that I would never have an educational grasp on in less than a minute. And I felt that I knew what we were talking about. Well, I, I would say with that, I will end with, you should never confuse your audience. So here's, here's some advice to everybody like that mm-hmm. is a lot of people, I think that they use big words and stuff like that. And then I believe that that's very selfish because they're trying to show how smart they are. That is not going to get you anywhere. Making your audience feel like they're dumb or they don't understand or you're making things intentionally more complicated to make you look smart is, is not a recipe for success. The recipe for success is making things relevant and understandable and making it obvious why what you're talking about affects them and how mm-hmm. it affects them and how they can use whatever you're talking about to make their life better. That's great. I think that this is a great spot to in the interview which i don't want to end but you know we have we do have time limits round two coming in just a short while so it was really great talking to you zach i'm I'm super excited to come back please all right and here we are toward the very end of our interview and one of my favorite parts what did we learn today i learned that today i learned a lot about capitalism i learned a lot about supply and demand i learned that Everything you learn in this life can be applicable. I realize that there are ways that I can still apply my time with Buffalo Wild Wings to uh, learning about capitalism today. I learned a lot about how Hong Kong works and how it is a unique example that only exists in that part of the world. And the lessons that are learned there could not be applied in other places, in other massive countries. I also learned that doing a podcast is not only a good way to learn more about the friends that you already have, but it is a very good way to make new friends. Thank you so much for coming on this episode, Richard. Do you have any words of advice, any inspirational quotes for the people at home? I have a lesson from Ray Dalio's book, Principles, which uh, I think everyone can apply And it's when faced with two very bad choices or what seem like an awful dilemma, relax, take a breather, think a little harder. In my experience, there's always another way that's going to make things work out if you just think about it and slow down. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on this episode, Richard. And thank you guys for listening at home. And I will talk to you later. 